Chapter twenty one of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part two. Chapter twenty one. London from April till September, eighteen twenty two. North River. Song by a lady on board the steamer. Mr. Swift, departure for the falls of Niagara with a Dutch guide, Monsieur Violet. At New York, I took my passage on the packet boat for Albany, situated some distance up the North River. The passengers were numerous. Towards the evening of the first day, a collation of fruit and milk was served. The ladies sat upon benches on the deck, whilst the gentlemen lay stretched at their feet. The conversation was not long kept up. At sight of the magnificent scenery of the river, we involuntarily became silent. Suddenly some one cried out, See, there is the place where Asgill was taken. A Quakeress from Philadelphia was asked to sing the melody, well known under the name of Asgill. We were among the mountains. The voice of the songstress died away on the waves, or swelled again as we sailed closer to the bank. The fate of this young soldier, at once a lover, a poet, a man of courage and favourite of Washington, and honoured by the noble-minded mediation of an unfortunate queen, added a new charm to the romantic scenery. M. de Fontaine, a friend whom I have lost, let fall some courageous expressions in memory of Asgill, when Bonaparte was preparing to mount the throne which had been occupied by Marie Antoinette. The American officers appeared to be affected by the song of their Pennsylvanian countrywomen. The various scenes of trouble through which their country had passed rendered the calm of the present more deeply impressive. They contemplated with emotion places which not long since had been filled with troops, and echoed the clang of arms, but were now buried in profound repose. These places, gilded by the last rays of the sun, enlivened by the whistling of the cardinals, the cooing of the wood-pigeons, and the song of the mocking-bird, whose inhabitants, leaning listlessly on their elbows in their enclosures fringed with bignonias, gazed at our vessel as she glided past beneath them. On my arrival at Albany, I went in search of Mr. Swift, to whom I had a letter of recommendation. This Mr. Swift carried on a trade in furs with the Indians, who occupied the territory ceded by England to the United States. For the civilized powers, republican and monarchical, without ceremony, divided and partitioned lands in America, which belonged to neither. After having listened to my statements, Mr. Swift started a number of well-founded objections. He said, in the first place, that I could not alone undertake a journey of this magnitude, without assistance, a guide, and recommendations to the English, American, and Spanish stations, through which I should be obliged to pass. That then, if I were fortunate enough to pass safely through so many deserts, I would arrive at frozen regions where I must necessarily perish from cold and hunger. He advised me to begin by acclimating myself, to make acquaintance with the Sioux, the Iroquois, and the Eskimo languages, and to spend some time among the backwoodsmen and the agents of the Hudson's Bay Company. When, he said, I had made these experimental trials, I might perhaps be able in the course of four or five years, with the aid of the French government, to proceed on my dangerous mission. This advice, of which in reality I recognised the justice, thwarted my wishes. If I had consulted only my inclination, I would have set out directly on a journey to the Pole, just as one goes from Paris to Pontoise. I, however, concealed my displeasure from Mr. Swift, and begged him to procure me a guide and horses to proceed to the falls of Niagara and to Pittsburgh. From Pittsburgh I purposed to descend the Ohio, and to collect information useful for my future projects. 
I still kept in view the first plan of my journey. Mr. Swift engaged for my service a Dutchman who was familiar with several of the Indian dialects, and having bought two horses, I left Albany. The whole country which lies between Albany and Niagara is at present cleared, inhabited, and traversed by the New York Canal, but at that time a great part of the country was completely a desert. I had no sooner passed the Mohawk and entered the woods in which the axe had never resounded than I became, as it were, intoxicated with a sense of independence. I passed from tree to tree and from right to left, saying, Here, no more roads, no more towns, no more monarchies, no more republics, no more presidents, no more kings, no more men and to try whether I was really re-established in the fullness of my original rights, I betook myself to voluntary actions which enraged my guide, who, in his soul, was convinced I was really mad. Alas, I imagined myself alone in the midst of the forest, where I bore such a lofty head. All of a sudden I knocked my nose against a shed, and under this shed presented themselves to my astonished eyes the first savages I had ever seen. They consisted of about a score of persons, men and women, daubed over with paint, like sorcerers, half-naked, with pierced ears, their heads adorned with crows' feathers, and rings in their noses. A little Frenchman, powdered and frizzled, dressed in an apple-green coat, a drugget waistcoat, and a muslin front and ruffles, was busy scraping away on an old pocket-fiddle, and playing Madelon Friquet to the dancing of these Iroquois. Monsieur Violet, for that was his name, was the dancing-master to these savages, who paid for his lessons in beaver-skins and bears' hams. He had been a kitchen-boy in the service of General Rochambeau during the American War. Having stayed behind in New York on the departure of our army, he resolved to devote himself to teaching the fine arts among the Americans. His views had grown with his success, and this new Orpheus carried civilization among the savage hordes of the New World. When speaking to me of the Indians, he always said, C'est messieurs sauvages et ces dames sauvagesses. He bestowed great praise on the agility of his pupils. In truth, I never in my life saw such extraordinary gambols. Monsieur Violet, holding his little fiddle between his chin and his chest, tuned his miserable instrument, and shouted to the Iroquois, Places! And the whole party leapt like a band of demons. Was it not an overwhelming thing for a disciple of Rousseau to have his first introduction to savage life at a ball given by an old kitchen-boy of General Rochambeau to a band of Iroquois? I had a great desire to laugh, but I was cruelly humiliated. End of chapter 21